I were asked what is one of the biggest issues that happens in relationships, any kind of relationships, husband and wife, husband, uh, parents and children, co-workers, friends, what, what, what are the biggest issues that happens there? I would say more than anything else is unmet expectations. That, that we, we go into relationships with this sense of this is what it's going to be. Because we love each other, we're committed to each other, we expect this. And, and over the course of time, people just don't live up to what we thought they would, right? And, and then the older you get, the more you realize and that we've done it to others, that... that we're initially so aware of how others have done it to us, but trust me, over time you become more painfully aware of how many people um, you've disappointed. In fact, I was telling someone I, for years, uh, my daughter, one of my daughters, or both my daughters, I don't know, they both look alike, they gave me a Christmas gift that was this little diode, that uh, a little flashing light that went back and forth like this real fast, and you could program it so that it looked like light words were floating in the air. In lights, and I programmed it to say, "My motto as a pastor: disappointing someone every day." It, it, um, and and actually, that was aspirational. You hope to only disappoint one every day, um, because you realize that that's a reality in a lot of our relationships, isn't it? It's also a reality in our relationship with God. One of the things that all of us, I believe, typically, maybe not all of us, but many of us have had to work through is that time when God didn't do it with the way we thought he would. We, we read his promises. We trusted his promises. We know he loves us. We know he's powerful to do whatever he wants. And we end up in a circumstance where we say, God, where are you? What are you, what are you thinking? What are, you, what are you doing? And, and it's my opinion that, that that moment is something that is a part of the maturation process for all Christians. That, that we have to work, through, just like we do, for instance, in a marriage. You have to come to grips with the fact that your spouse is not going to live up to all your expectations. They're, they're going to they're disappoint you. Even the best of spouses the plural of spouses is spice. Um, but the, the, you know, even the very best, are, are, there are going to be days when you wake up and think, what are you thinking? You know, this just isn't what I expected. And, and you've thrown me off here. I don't, I, don't know, I don't know who you are because you're not what I thought you are. And therefore, I wonder. Because one of the things that gives trust is predictability. I feel like I can predict what you will do. And when I don't believe I can predict, based on your love, what you will do, that's when I, I struggle with trust. And so that, that enters into relationships, whether human relationships on earth, family relationships, work relationships. You know, we signed this contract. I thought you signed. Well, that isn't what I meant. You know, it, where ever and and ultimately the one most significantly and and we have to be honest about it is most of us go through that point with in our relationship with God that we hit those moments in our lives when we say God I, I, help me help me God just doesn't work the way we expect him to as I prepared for today's sermon I realized this is my last Christmas series for you and um, that's a little bittersweet, but, but 
what I do every Christmas is I go back and read all the gospels and read all those Advent passages, Old and New Testament, and say, okay, Lord, which one this year? And this year I settled on Matthew. Uh, now, when, when we think of Christmas, we think of Luke most often because that's the one Charlie Brown recites in Snoopy's Christmas or whatever it's called. But and that's the one, by the way, when I was in the first grade in the Tyler Independent School District, that's the one my teacher had me memorize for our PTA Christmas program. Boy, have things changed since then. But Matthew has a little different perspective. Matthew is written primarily to a Jewish audience, and as such, uh, Matthew quotes the Old Testament. He uses words that Gentiles might not necessarily be comfortable with. He has a very focused approach to speak to the Jewish audience, and I think we will see how that plays into his depiction of the Christmas story in a very, very significant way. Because, see, the Jews had expectations for the Messiah, which is a good thing. God had made promises that there would be a Messiah, and when there are promises, that creates expectations, right? And, and Matthew's depiction of the birth of Christ is fraught with this revelation that God didn't work the way they expected to. That, that throughout Matthew's story, there is instance after instance where he is, he, is, he is bringing issues up that for a Jewish reader would say, well, that's, that's, not, that's not the way it's supposed to be. And I want us to look at that together. So if you have a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. We're even going to begin with the genealogy. I, I, my, in 1973, I was a youth intern at Grace, believe it or not. I was in college. I was at Tyler Junior College, affectionately known as Tom Tom Tech, and we took a summer off and come up here and worked with the youth. And so I lived with a family here at Grace and um, worked at the old Johnny Mitchell Company. Johnny Mitchell was one of the outstanding Christian businessmen in, in Dallas for decades, and he had a company that started out building cop cotton gins. He created the icy machine and I worked on their air conditioning line. So I ended up brazing or welding copper tubing for an air conditioner. <laughs> and um, so it was, it was an interesting time in, in my life. And, and I was here that summer and I can't remember what. I started taking a drug for cholesterol and now I can't remember my name. Um, uh, I was here that summer, 73. I'll come back to it, okay? Will you work with me? Oh, now I remember. There was, uh, there was I'll never forget, there was a seminary student there because it was right by Dallas Seminary down in Deep Ellum. Those buildings are still there. They're kind of a dark green color. They're, and, and there was a seminary student there, and I'm a college student, and, and they kind of put him over in a car near using cement, so that was before the days of Asha. So he was kind of high all the time. And um, I asked him, he was kind of odd. And I asked him one time, what, what do you do all day over in that corner cementing pieces together? He said, I'm memorizing scripture. I said, that's great. What are you memorizing? He said, genealogies. And I realized at that point in time, I never wanted to go to seminary if that's what it did to you. Yeah, I mean, I, I've just got to admit to you that, that uh, genealogy has never been a big attraction to me. I mean, it's family trees, right? But Matthew's has a lot to say to us, and I want you to see that. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. 
This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He introduces it by saying, I'm talking about Jesus, who is the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the prophesied ruler, and he's son of David and Abraham. Why David and Abraham? Because those are the two great covenants or promises of God that created the Jewish people and their expectation of how God would work. God spoke to Abraham in Genesis 12, 15, and 17 in the Abrahamic covenant to say, out of your children, I'm going to create a great nation which will impact the whole world. And you remember Abraham says, one problem, got no children. Lord, and, and God does this weird thing. He gives him a child at 100 years of age. And, and um, to older parents, can you imagine that, how excruciating that was? And so, and yet through Abraham, God creates this nation that grows to millions of people by the time of the Exodus. And then God gives them the land that he promised in the Abrahamic covenant and the land of Canaan and they settle and become a kingdom, a nation. And then, then to David, who is the ultimate fulfillment in many ways, I mean the initial fulfillment in many ways of the Abrahamic covenant because it's the culmination of all they expected because David sets up this kingdom which extends and builds the power of the nation of Israel. Then God in 2 Samuel, Samuel chapter 7 comes to and gives the Davidic covenant and says, you're going to have a son and when he sins, I'm going to restore him. And then there's this next phrase that clearly doesn't apply to Solomon. He says, and he'll be a king who will rule forever. And the Jews understood that he was saying that there will be a descendant of David who will be an eternal king. And so these two great covenants are foundational to who Jesus is and why he's come. So he says, this is the family tree of Jesus the Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. And now he starts going through the name. I won't read them all, but I'll read many of them. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, you remember the story, was the son who finally came. And then just as an aside, Genesis chapter 22, God comes to Abram and said, you know, your son, I want you to take him to Mount Moriah and, and sacrifice him. And, and Abram's thinking, but Lord, this was the whole deal. You gave me this son. But what Abram didn't know was that Abram's son was a picture of God, the father's son, whom he, his only begotten son, it's a fulfillment of John three sixteen. He's only begotten my only son who will give his life so that you can have eternal life. Hugely, hugely powerful idea. And Isaac's the father of Jacob. Jacob's the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah's the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Okay, we just hit a speed bump in the world of genealogies. Because first of all, in the first century, they didn't typically normally include a woman in genealogies. Very patriarchal society. And, and that's just the way it was. But even if you were going to include women, why wouldn't you include Sarah? Right? Sarah's hugely significant person whose faith in many ways is greater than Abraham's. Sure, she laughs, giggles when they tell her she's going to have a baby, but she keeps being faithful even when Abraham keeps giving her away every time he gets into trouble. Um, and Tamar, you know the story of Tamar? Um, Tamar in Genesis chapter 38 is widowed by a son of Judas and 
At that time, there was a provision called leveret marriage whereby uh, a widow was, was given to a, a next of kin, a brother, so that she could have children because children were the means, their social welfare system. That's, that's how you had land. That's how you had provision. And especially for a woman, highly significant. There wasn't exactly social security. And, and she, in exasperation with Judah's sin, poses as a prostitute and entices him and has twins. And, and um, she represents the failure of the men in this lineage to do what they're responsible to do. And you think, wow, I don't know that I would have told that one. You know what I mean? I mean, let's be honest. Every family has those, right? Every family tree has people that you'd just rather not tell their story. I read something the other day that said, if, if every family has one of those, and if you don't know it, who it is, it might just be you. Um, but, but the reality is, there, uh, families are, every family is fraught with people who struggle and have disappointments. And, but do you want to advertise the Tamar situation? And Perez, one of them, is the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Benadab, and Benadab the father of Nashan, and Nashan the father of Salmon. These are names you never see in our nursery. And Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Well, at least now we've included a prostitute in the genealogy. That makes us all feel better. And you know, in Joshua chapter 2, Joshua sent spies into the land, and and and... Rahab was the one that hid the spies at the risk of her own life. And isn't it weird that she ends up in the genealogy of the Messiah? She's a Canaanite. And by the way, most, most people believe that, that Tamar was probably a Canaanite as well. And what's, what's going on here? So Solomon, the brother of Boaz, was, whose mother was Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, was the mother of Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. Ruth, now, we've got another woman, but at least she has sterling character. Ruth is someone we all admire, but she's a Moabitess. Not only a, not a Gentile, but one of those groups that we particularly don't look fondly upon. And Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David, and David's the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, whom David took in for an adulterous relationship and had Uriah murdered. Why this emphasis on the four women? I think because the shock value of including women forces us to see the brokenness in the family tree. It's not saying, look how bad these women are. It, because the failure, as often as not, was the men involved. But, but it forces you to see the brokenness in Jesus' family tree. Most of them Gentile. Some believe all four of them Gentile. Some question about some. But, and, and adultery, incest, murder, prostitution... And 
you think a, a Jewish leader in the first century would read this and think, I don't think this makes your Messiah look so good. Because what was the emphasis of the first century? The emphasis of the first century was obedience to the law, looking righteous to the point many had perverted to the point it was only about looking good. And Jesus, so in Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, continually reminds them it's your heart, not just that you look good. In fact, so much so that Paul had to say, do we sin all the more that grace may abound? God forbid. You know, in other words, it's not that we disobey, but it's that we obey with an understanding that it's a heart issue as well. And so a Jewish reader relates us and says, this is a, a, this, how could your Messiah come from these people? First section is the descendants of Abraham. The second section, the descendants of David. Uh, David was the father of Solomon. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the, the father of Jehoshaphat, who jumped around a lot. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Je then Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, Manasseh, Ammon, Josiah, and Jeconiah. It, by the way, if you look at that list of descendants of those who are kings, the majority are horrible. There are a few that are pretty good. But even those that start out good, like Hezekiah, end up a disappointment. I mean, the, the, lest you think, oh, it's just the women that he highlights as bad. No, the majority of these, there, there are very few of these descendants who have extraordinarily righteous lives. Verse 12 after the exile to Babylon. The third section is when the monarchy ended because the southern kingdom was taken captive by the Babylonians and removed so that the kingdom, the monarchy ends. You have pre-monarchy, the provenance to Abraham, the monarchy, and now post-monarchy with the time in the Babylonian captivity. And I'm not going to read all of those names. But it ends with Jacob, the father of Joseph, verse 16, the husband of Mary, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. And thus there were 14 generations in all from Abram to David, 14 from David to the exile of Babylon, and 14 from the exile to Messiah. Now, one of the things you'll notice, not only is it different from Luke's uh, genealogy, but also there are differences between the two genealogies, especially from the captivity on. There are uh, two prevalent theories about what's going on there. The one I was taught going through seminary is one of the genealogies is the genealogy of Mary through whom Jesus got his genetics. And the other one is the genealogy of, jo uh, of Joseph through whom he got his right to be king. And uh, many scholars hold to that position. Another position that is more commonly spoken of today is that um, one is the genealogy of his physical descendancy and the other one is the genealogy of the the monarchy descendancy which at times they would have diverged but come back together um the fact of the matter is we don't know we don't know we do know he matthew left out people and that was consistent in genealogies of that day they didn't when they said was the father of that didn't mean they had every generation they would the point was to trace it through the family line but he does it so that there are 14. And of course, people say, why are there 14? Can I, let me give you two or three quick ideas just to satisfy the curious. Um, there were 14 high priests from the time of the building, of the, uh, from Aaron to the building of the temple. 
Um, so that was a number in the succession of the high priest that was significant. Um, some have said, well, 14 is two sevens, and so three fourteens is six sevens, and seven is the perfect number. And the one that, the explanation that's most often used is one that we, we don't relate to naturally, but that um, in, in Hebrew, they didn't have different numbers. They used the letters of the alphabet for numbers. So if you take the value of the numbers that make the name of David and add those up together, it takes 14. So it, it had become a significant name. And we don't, we don't understand completely, but Matthew wants us to see that God has a plan in all of that, that he doesn't want us to miss. That's, that's what he wants us to see. But I want you to notice, this is a messed up family. It's just... It's just not the, God works through people that I wouldn't think he'd work through. Did any of us ever have expectations of who God should work through and then he works through people that we think, really, Lord? Sometimes it's when he uses us and we're shocked. But oftentimes also, it's, it's when we look at uh, leadership and, and different roles or whatever, and we say, God, you, you can use them? So that's the unexpected genealogy. And verses 18 through 21 is the unexpected circumstances. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, that means intimately, in the betrothal, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. A couple of things. Joseph and Mary are nobodies. They are, they are not significant people. We know that for a number of reasons, but not the least is. According to Luke, when they go to Bethlehem, they got no place to stay, right? They're they didn't have anybody to call ahead and give them their credit card. Um, betrothal is different from our engagement. Many of you know this, but it's similar to our engagement. It was done a year before the actual wedding. The difference is that if you were betrothed, the only way you could break a betrothal was either to getting finalizing their marriage or a, a, a legal divorce. In other words, it had all the responsibilities of marriage practically, but none of the benefits. You didn't get to live together, but but you you could only break it by a writ of divorce, which had to go before the the judicial authorities to accomplish that. And so it was very very significant in the ancient Near East at this time. Typically, um, a, a, a girl would be betrothed as soon as she hit adolescence. Because we boys are slower, the boys are a little older, oftentimes 14, 15. Because they in their society understood that it's a lot of pressure to be an adolescent and tell them to abstain sexually, which is God's plan. So they just married them quick. In fact, in the ancient Near East, there was one culture that said, if, if, a, if a young man and a woman are alone together for 20 minutes, we can assume something bad's happened. Um, um, they're pretty realistic about the realities of humanity, and so they would have married very early. Now, I am aware that some scholars believe that Joseph was much older, possibly a widower that had taken Mary, because in the letter gospel record, he's never mentioned. So it's assumed that he's died by now, and so some scholars suggest that he was much older. And that is certainly possible, but that would not be typical 
typically, they were very, very young, would have been betrothed in an arranged marriage. Stop and think who your parents would have married you to at 12 or 13. And tell me how you sleep at night. But at any rate, um, and then she shows up pregnant. And Joseph says, I'm not the father. And he is now put in an incredibly difficult position. As I, I, or, there are always new commentaries coming out, and so I read some stuff this year that I'd never read before. And one of the things that they've discovered in the ancient Near East, even in Rome, in Rome, in the empire of Rome, if a man's betrothed, his fiance, we would say, or finance, we say in East Texas, if his fiance turned up pregnant, if he would either have to acknowledge that he did it and they get married immediately with shame, or according to Rome, he would be punished because it would be assumed that the fact that he didn't call her out and label her an adulteress, that he had put her into prostitution. They were really harsh, really harsh. And in the first century, Jewish rabbinical teaching, uh, now the Old Testament law said that there had been adultery, there would be stoning. But at this point, that wasn't practiced very often. But it was expected that the husband had a responsibility to either marry her and take responsibility for the child with the resulting embarrassment or call her out and shame her publicly because the assumption is if he doesn't, then somebody's lying. I mean, it, we have no comprehension of how big a deal this is. And by the way, that's why in the Gospels at times they'll say, hey, you're the son of Mary, aren't you? Jesus' opposition is saying, we know how the circumstances of your birth. And um, see, we, we, we would say, why would you have any question about that? Why would Jesus be born in circumstances that would cause people to question the legitimacy of of the birth? Verse 19 is fascinating. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had a mind to divorce her quietly. I love this verse. Let me tell you why. He is faithful to the law. Some translations said because Joseph was righteous. He cared about what commanded, God commanded. But he wasn't going to embarrass her. In life, typically we, gener- we, we move toward one of two positions. We either are the truth people, the law people, the right and wrong people, or we're the grace people, the mercy people, the forgiveness people. And we tend to think one or the other is right. This is an incredible example of a man whom Scripture says he was righteous as to the law. But he was going to show this young woman mercy because all of us need mercy, right? God is that way to us. In fact, he he paid the ultimate price so that we could receive mercy. He gave his son. 
He gave his son so that you and I could receive mercy and grace, right? So that when God looks at you and me, he doesn't see all that list of sins that people know about, much less all those no one looks at, knows about. He, he sees in me as a follower of Jesus, someone who's embraced Jesus as my Savior. When he looks at me, he sees the perfection that is Jesus. And not because he's deluded, but because Jesus has taken the punishment for my sins upon himself and put his righteousness upon me. So that God shows us in the gospel how righteousness and mercy fit together. And the body of Christ, that's one of the things we're called to be. Fearless in our proclamation of what truth, of what is right. But lavish and our gift of mercy and grace because we've received it. Joseph is a hero to me. Verse 20, but after he'd considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, notice he pulls him back to the covenant. Don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Wow. And she gave birth to a son, and you were to give him the name Yeshua, Jesus, Joshua, the one who brought the people into the land of promise because he will save his people from their sins. Why did Jesus come? To save the people from their sins. By the way, this is the biggest unexpected thing for the Jewish reader of the first century because what did they think the primary thing the Messiah would do? He would come and elevate the kingship. He would sit on the throne of David and he would defeat the Roman armies and he would provide fairness and righteousness and goodness and bless the nation the way the promises said he would. He would expand their kingdom and there would be goodness in the world and, and they expected this human king to come and reign and bring all the blessings that he promised. And God says, but that's, that's not the primary problem. The primary problem is you're dead in your sins. The first issue, the primary issue, is you're dead in your sins. It, the Jewish people, in spite of the sacrificial system and everything else, had fallen prey to the thought that somehow our circumstances now are the most important thing. But, but the book of Ecclesiastes says you can have everything, but if, if that'll never fulfill. The reality is that my problems are not you and my circumstances. My first and primary problem is that I am dead in my sins. And therefore, I have no relationship to God. And so Jesus came to save the people by forgiving their sins. I had a friend that brought me in to work on the Dallas Christian Leadership Prayer Breakfast for a number of years. And I he's a, a businessman, and, and I he would say, now, we don't need to forget our first and primary job is to depopulate hell. Because no matter what other problems people have, their eternal reality is the most important one. And whether they know God or not is the most significant one. And, and we, we in church can get all fussy about all kinds of things and forget the most important thing is, is do you know Jesus? Where will you spend eternity? Will you know God? 
And here, and Matthew says, he came as the Messiah so that people for, be forgiven from their sins. Really unexpected circumstances. And then finally, verses 22 to 25, an unexpected child. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Quotation from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. I believe Isaiah 7 through 9, 10, that whole section while it has application to the immediate context that Isaiah wrote out, it all has this overlaying messianic symbol. So the passage that Lucas preached on last week, uh, for unto us a child is born, his name, you know, the one that the Messiah made famous. That, that passage ultimately culminates this prophecy about the Messiah who will come, who will be born of a virgin. There's question, what did it mean in the immediate context? Um, some have said it, it was referring to the, because uh, in the Old Testament, chapter 7, verse 14 of Isaiah, that word is maiden, so it doesn't have to mean a, a virgin. So some say, well, it's referring to Hezekiah, the next king. So other, others say, no, it's, it's Isaiah's son, Mahar Hashbaz, another name that we desperately need in the nursery. And then others say, no, it's an unknown figure who was a part of God's plan in the time of Isaiah. But what the Jews clearly understood is that it, pro, it, it pointed toward the Messianic king. And, and when Matthew in chapter one quotes it, he uses a Greek word that only means virgin. He has no question about what it means. And... and so Matthew says, this is fulfilling the prophecy. And when Joseph woke up, verse 24, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. And he took Mary home and his wife, but he didn't consummate their marriage until he gave birth to a son. And he called him Jesus. And a Jewish reader reads this and says, I got all kinds of, this isn't, this isn't at all what we expected, right? It's a messed up family tree and messed up birth circumstances. And an angel came in a vision, right. And what does that tell us? God always meets his promises, but because he's God, he does it in unexpected ways. God does it in unexpected ways. Can't you relate to that? How many times have you been absolutely into your rope, thought, man, I just don't get it. And God has disappointed. He's not done. I mean, what in the world he is thinking? And then you look back in retrospect and said, wow, he knew. See, they, want, they wanted a king to come sit on the throne and beat Rome. But God does it in an unexpected way to give them something much better. He gave him an eternal king who not only offered freedom from Rome, but for freedom and forgiveness for their own brokenness and sin. A life where there had been death. His way is so much better. And we have to be reminded that while God doesn't always do the way we expect him to do it, what he does is always ultimately better. We may not know till we're in his presence how that works. But we can trust even in the unexpected that he is yet at work. 
Because he's faithful to his promise, the promise to Abraham, the promise to David, and the promise to you and me. He, he, while, while he, he doesn't do it the way I want him to, he does it. And just as his way looks bad in the middle of it, but is far better in the end, I trust him for that today too. Because we all have disappointments, right? We, we all go through times in our lives when, when it just didn't work out the way we pictured. And, and we just stop talking to God rather than face our disappointment or we speak to him in frustration, telling him why we're disappointed or we walk away from him because he didn't live up to what we thought. And the birth situation of Jesus is a reminder that no, God is sovereign. He does his will the way only he can. And he does it in ways that defy our expectations. First of all, because he works through incredibly broken people. Incredibly broken people. And ultimately, his way is always better. And I have to make a decision to trust that. Please pray with me. Father, we confess that we struggle when you don't meet our expectations. And sometimes it's in anger, sometimes it's in heartbreak, and sometimes it's just in cynicism, or even worse, we walk away from you. Father, I thank you that even when you sent your son, you did it in ways that demonstrated your mercy and your grace and your creativity to do your perfect will. Lord, help us trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.